Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. John Lennon was a musical genius and one of the most beloved cultural figures of the 20th century. His songs inspired dreamers to imagine. His search for the truth gave power to the people. But some thought he dreamed too much. Others thought he was too powerful. So he was followed, he was threatened, he was declared a danger to the United States. And in 1980, he was assassinated. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Jim Steele with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 009-08-0491. Case subject is Lennon, John Winston Ono. This information pertains to a period ending December 1980. Interview subject is Cabot, Richard Alva. Interview number 0-91-119-71. Recall number 1, December 29, 1980. was John Lennon like? He wasn't like anything. He was unique. Ha. I've always wanted to hear somebody say that. And I picked you as the victim. I liked John. I didn't get to know him a lot. Almost all the time I spent with him was on my show. I'm still looking for two long letters he wrote me, which I'm hoping I simply misplaced. And of course I saw him when I went down to the courthouse to testify on his behalf to say that he shouldn't be deported. He was highly intelligent, a very available guy, accessible, easy to talk to the first time you met him. That old cliche where you felt like you'd known him for a while, but it was true. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. His guard was down more than people knew. In fact, he often had no guard, and that left him vulnerable. Ultimately, it's what killed him, because all it took was the wrong person to get to him walk right up to him and splattering blood on the tracks. I hadn't seen John Lennon for years when I heard the news that he had been shot. We had exchanged letters on and off throughout the 1970s, but... Which I'm hoping I simply misplaced. The last time I saw him, it may have been when I went down to the courthouse to offer my support to testify. The government was trying to deport him. He shouldn't be deported. John had very politely asked me for my assistance. Perhaps he wanted a friend who wore a suit and tie to appear on his behalf in front of the judge. And who was I to say no? John and Yoko, who had been on my talk show twice, once in 1971 and again in 1972, when he talked at length about their ongoing battle with the U.S. government. Both times they were on, our ratings went through the roof. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. I was in his debt. And despite the fact that our relationship consisted of those appearances on my show, 
and a few odd meetings here and there. And I do mean odd. One was backstage at Madison Square Garden, and the other was in a hotel room, and he and Yoko stayed in bed the whole time. But despite such limited time spent together, I did consider him a friend. So I went to the courthouse, stood in front of the judge. The judge asked me to explain, in my own words, what was good about John Lennon. He was highly intelligent. I said he was a force for good, a force for good for young people. The judge asked how he was a force for good for young people. What was John Lennon like? My mouth was dry. I didn't want to use too much wit in my response. I wanted to be respectful of the process and also do my part to guarantee that John would be allowed to stay in New York. So how was he a force for good? I responded, well, as an example for young people who want to do something good with their lives. Have you ever heard such an idiotic response? Anyway, it couldn't have hurt John's case that much because they did allow him to stay. Much to Nixon's chagrin, I'm sure. John told me all about his ongoing issues with Nixon, and I told him about mine. I liked John. Listen to this. After I testified for John, I was told my entire staff at the show was audited by the IRS. Every last cameraman, every secretary, they went after everybody. And not only that, but Nixon was keeping his own scorecard on my show. Good thing and a bad thing. Nixon was trumpeting supersonic transport at the time, you know, SST, and it was highly controversial. It was basically to try to get all airplanes flying even faster, and it was going to cost American taxpayers something like one point something billion. You know, on this uh, SST thing, right? Uh, we're keeping it very closely held here right. for reasons that you know, but I thought you should know that today I'm going to have Conley announce the, um, the other one. I thought it was silly, a waste of money, money spent on paranoia and imagined irrelevance on the global stage. And I said so on my show, many times. And Nixon had a guy who kept a tally. They had a running tally of every time I spoke ill of that program. Every time I spoke ill of anything that had to do with the president. Now, they hated losing face, they really did. So the White House called our show, acted as their own booking agent, and they sent the guy, William Magruder, onto my show to tout SST. You know, on this uh, SST thing. At the end of our talk, before we cut to commercial, I got the final word in when I said, well, I certainly hope the SST is defeated. That didn't make me any friends at the White House. John knew that I was on his page. We were birds of a feather. I liked John. That said, John and Yoko asked to meet with me before they would agree to come on my show. They hadn't done anything like that before. This was before they took over the Mike Douglas show for an entire week. And when I met with John, he told me that they were interested in me because I had the only halfway intelligent show on television. I said, are you sure you want to be on a show that's halfway intelligent? Those two appearances that they made in September of 1971 and May of 1972 remain some of my fondest memories. John was nervous, he was opinionated, and he was funny. I thought the 1970s were going to be the decade of John Lennon, that something truly inspirational was going to happen. But then he made fewer and fewer appearances on shows like mine, fewer and fewer appearances in public, 
and at some point I realized that I hadn't seen or heard from John in quite some time. I didn't get to know him a lot. Few people had. Few people outside his immediate family and tightly knit social circle. What was he doing, we all wondered. In the second half of the 70s, years went by without an album or a single. Has he given up being creative or making music? These were real questions that we were all asking ourselves. It didn't seem conceivable that John Lennon would burrow himself into a hermetic life and never feel inspired to raise his voice again in song or in protest. That old cliché. But do you know what was going on? It's like that story about the Japanese lord, the one that Yoko told. Did Yoko tell you that story? Here, I'll tell you. Let me see if I can remember it correctly. So, there's this Japanese lord. Very regal, very important man. He wasn't like anything. He commissioned a painter to create a painting for him. I can't quite recall what the commission was exactly, what the painting was of, but that's not important. A year passed and no painting. Nothing. The Lord had become quite impatient, naturally, so he sent a messenger to go call on the painter and find out what was going on. The messenger arrived at the painter's house and asked if the painter was finished. A very available guy. The painter simply said, Oh, all right, just wait in the next room over there for a moment. And the painter, in his own room, quickly scribbled and painted something. Accessible. The messenger returned to the Lord and said, Do you know what the painter did? He didn't have a painting ready, so he just scribbled one quickly while I waited in the next room. This made the Lord furious, so he sent the messenger out again to fetch the painter and bring him back to the Lord. The painter arrived and stood in front of the Lord. The Lord said, I understand you weren't ready to deliver the painting, and you just scribbled the thing while my messenger waited in the next room. The painter wasn't disturbed by this at all. He simply looked the Lord in the eye and said, Oh yes, but I spent the entire year preparing for this painting. Now, those letters. I'm still looking for two long letters he wrote me. I mentioned earlier the letters that John had sent me over the years. The years in between when I last saw him at court and now. The letters were quite long, quite detailed, and quite surprising. They showed another side of John that perhaps the public rarely saw. Warm, open, vulnerable. I'm hoping I simply misplaced People have this image of John and Paul at each other's throats in the years following the breakup of the Beatles. Their spats were the stuff of legend. Paul took a shot at John and Yoko in a song called Too Many People. And then John fired back with How Do You Sleep? Which was a not very thinly veiled attack on Paul. What was that line? The only good thing you did was yesterday or whatever. I would argue that conventional wisdom had it that John thought that Paul wrote saccharine ditties for tea time. And Paul thought that John had disappeared up his own ass a little too far with the encouragement of Yoko. I think that was just publicity. 
And you know what they say about publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Just like Paul admitting to the press that he dropped acid. Or John saying that thing about the Beatles being bigger than Jesus. The two greatest songwriters of the second half of the 20th century duking it out in song. Now that sells some records. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. But it wasn't like that in reality. Here's an example. In 1976, Lorne Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night Live, offered the Beatles a check for $3,000 if they would reunite and appear on the show to play three songs. But it was true. This was the very first season of the show. Lorne had made the offer during the show's live broadcast on a Saturday night, and sure, it was tongue-in-cheek. He appeared at a desk with one framed photo of Nixon and another featuring President Ford and Chevy Chase and said, This check here is made out to the Beatles. Any way you want. You want to give Ringo less? That's up to you. But at the same time, he was dead serious. In 1976, everyone was dead serious about wanting to see the Beatles play live together again. But here's the thing. Little did Lorne Michaels know. Little did anyone know. But Paul was hanging out with John at John's apartment in the Dakota building, watching Saturday Night Live. True. They weren't feuding. They weren't fighting. They weren't trashing each other in song. They were relaxing at the Dakota, sharing a drink, sharing a laugh, reminiscing. True. And then on comes Lorne Michaels making his offer. Paul looked at John and said, why not? John laughed and responded, sure, why not? After all, it was only two miles from the Dakota to Rockefeller Plaza. And at that time of night, it might take them all of 10 minutes to get there in a cab. Just think, while the majority of the world assumed the Beatles were fuming at each other from separate houses, separate continents even, the most famous of the Fab Four were moments away from putting on their coats, running to the curb, hailing a cab, riding down Madison Avenue, and knocking on the door of Studio 8H to do an impromptu duet on live television. A very available guy. And that wasn't the only offer that came the Beatles' way. The whole reason that Lorne Michaels was offering 3,000 was to poke fun at this guy who had offered the boys 50 million for just one show. Paul said he'd do it. John said something like, I'd stand on me head in the corner for that kind of money. But the offer had strings attached. The guy with the money wanted the rights to make an album and a film of the concert, which the band would never agree to. The other myth about John was that he was Howard Hughes incarnate, that he never left the Dakota after Sean was born. That when Howard Hughes died in 1976, he was actually transfigured into John Lennon. He was unique. That John grew his fingernails out long, so long he couldn't play guitar anymore that he urinated in glass jars and kept those jars all around the apartment. Can you imagine? It was all bunk, of course. All of it rumor and hearsay and conjecture. John wasn't appearing to be making music during those last few years of the 1970s. He wasn't sitting in the corner of a darkened room covered with a bedsheet for weeks and months on end. He was getting out there. He was living life. He was taking chances, though much of the public never saw the chances he took. What was John Lennon like? And some of those chances nearly took his life. There's this one great story that someone told me shortly after John had died. In 1980, right before his 40th birthday, 
John decided he wanted to hop on a 43-foot sloop that was docked in Newport, Rhode Island, and sail it through the Bermuda Triangle to the actual island of Bermuda. He'd spent some time on a friend's yacht in the Long Island Sound, and he got the bug to go on a longer voyage. So he found a group of friends who would go with him. And I'm not making this up. The guy driving the yacht was called Captain Hank. 700 miles along cargo routes, next to behemoth tankers. Not to mention the clusterfuck that is the weather in the Bermuda Triangle. John could have disappeared into thin air, or into the deep ocean, the way so many other vessels and planes had gone missing. And they had good weather at first. Great weather, actually. That probably put John and the crew a little too much at ease. Because when the storm hit, and the storm always hits in the triangle, it took them by surprise. His guard was down. The water turned black. The winds kicked up. The waves crested at 20 feet tall. The ocean tossed that sloop from one watery hump to another. The elements conspired to swallow the yacht whole, to reach out and grab the deckhands one by one and throw them screaming into the waves and down to the bottom of the sea. His guard was down more than people knew. For 48 hours, Captain Hank commanded the wheel. And when he became too tired to go on, when the wind had snapped his face raw and the water had soaked him to the bone, he asked John to take over. It was a trial by fire, or rather, by wind and water. And son of a bitch, would you believe that? John came out unscathed on the other side of that storm. He made it to Bermuda. The entire crew made it with him. He was highly intelligent. He felt the thrill of overcoming a life-threatening challenge. He felt untouchable. He felt lucky. And he felt inspired. So inspired that he came back to New York City after his unbelievable journey, and he knew what he was going to do next. He was going to make a record. He had it all in his head. It had been there all along, just like the painter in the parable about the Japanese lord. John was done preparing. He was ready to create. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Now, I think John's intentions were good, great even, as he entered a new phase of his creative life. I know a thing or two about starting over. ABC canceled my talk show in 1974, despite the fact that I had intelligent conversations, or, as John would say, halfway intelligent, with celebrities like Marlon Brando, Laurence Olivier, Catherine Hepburn, and Norman Mailer. The ratings had dipped too much for the network's liking. Some said if the show hadn't been halfway intelligent, then we would have fared better. Well, I didn't let it take me down. I found new challenges. I've written for the New York Times. I've been in movies. I've been on Broadway. Granted, it's not sailing a sloop to Bermuda through gale-force winds, but these were things that kept me from being too comfortable. You can't let yourself get too comfortable. In John Lennon's case, I also think that by 1980, he had become a little too comfortable with being just another face on the street in New York City. I think he truly thought he had achieved peak anonymity. That he was just another guy wearing a New York City t-shirt. Just another dad pushing his toddler in a stroller. Accessible. Of course, this couldn't be further from the truth. He was John Lennon, for God's sakes. Everyone knew who he was. A very available guy. Everyone knew where he lived. 
easy to talk to. Thanks to an interview in the New York Daily News, Yoko even gave specific details not only as to where they were recording their new album, Double Fantasy, but what hours they were typically in the studio. Anyone who paid attention to his daily habits knew his routine. It was extremely easy to find him at the park next to the Metropolitan Museum at Café La Fortuna in Central Park, going to and from the Dakota. He wasn't like anything. In fact, fans just wandered up into John and Yoko's apartment. Off the street, I was told of one particular incident in which a fan made his way through the lobby, up the elevator, to John and Yoko's door. The door was unlocked. Of course it was. Look, I always lock the door of my New York City apartment, and I have a fraction of the amount of fame that John has. But this curious fan found John Lennon's door unlocked and let himself in. He walked through the living room, the kitchen. He walked into John and Yoko's bedroom. Fans walking up to John's place of residence was nothing new. It happened as early as the early 70s in England, Tittenhurst Park, the palatial country house in Ascot that John and Yoko owned before selling it to Ringo Starr. There's an unnerving and incredible scene in a documentary that was made about the making of Imagine, where a noticeably troubled man walked right up to the front door of the house and told John that he thought all of the Beatles songs had been written about him. Most people would have had that man ushered off the premises right away, or at least called the authorities. But what did John do? After clarifying that the Beatles songs weren't written about him, John welcomed the man inside his house and fed him. John showed compassion. He sought to understand. Good thing and a bad thing. Strangers walking into the Dakota building may not have rattled John, but Yoko was definitely concerned. He often had no guard. Pretty much everyone living in New York as early as the mid-70s were pretty concerned. Do you know about the Fear City pamphlets? I think this was 1975. Visitors stepped off planes at LaGuardia or JFK and walked into the terminal only to be handed these pamphlets that said, Welcome to Fear City on the front with an image of death himself. Inside were survival tips. Hold on to your purse with both hands. Don't leave anything of value visible in your car. Not even a couple of pennies. All it took was the wrong person. In fact, the pamphlet said that until things got better, the best tip was to stay the hell out of New York if at all possible. And what's even crazier is that these pamphlets were handed out by plainclothes officers of the NYPD. Throw the Son of Sam into that mix in 1977, while the city was enduring widespread blackouts and garbage strikes. It took a certain thick-skinned individual to live in New York City in the 1970s. Whether or not John was thick-skinned, I think he was, but I think, more dangerously, he was a bit oblivious to the clear and present danger. His guard was down. Yoko felt the fear and paranoia more than most. Yoko hired an ex-FBI agent named Douglas McDougall to act as a bodyguard, primarily for Sean, but she also wanted suggestions on how she and John could better protect themselves. McDougall had major concerns about how openly and laissez-faire the Lennons were. He often had no guard. He thought, at the very least, he should accompany Sean whenever he was out and about in the city, even with Yoko there. That way, Yoko could be a mother and worry about Sean, while McDougal could worry about everyone else. But McDougal's recommendations ran deeper than that. He wanted to assign an armed bodyguard to John and Yoko. The armed guard would ride with them wherever they went. 
He'd check their car and surroundings before they got in, and then, when they reached their destination, the bodyguard would be the first out of the car to, once again, clear the area before John and Yoko emerged in plain sight. John had made his fair share of enemies over the years. He spoke his mind. He didn't hold back. He was highly intelligent. He'd offended the Christian right. He'd offended the crown. He'd offended Nixon. He wasn't like anything. He'd offended Beatles fans. He'd offended the American jingoists who thought he should just shut the hell up and go back to England. He was unique. He'd offended people in bars in Los Angeles who were just out for a good time and instead were treated to a drunken display of entitlement. I think it's safe to say that by 1980, just about everyone who still thought about John Lennon had their own opinion about John Lennon, and it's also safe to say that most opinions were radically different than they were at the height of Beatlemania. A good thing and a bad thing. But John had a plan. He was recording an album, Double Fantasy, with his wife Yoko, and it was going to be the way back into the hearts and minds of the public. He would win over those who had written him off and remind everybody who had forgotten about him how great he was. The record-buying and radio-listening public would remember what it was they loved so much about John Lennon in the first place. That was the hope, at least. John, however, should have been on higher alert. Because the people who hadn't forgotten about him, well, they thought about him a lot. He was highly intelligent. One in particular, it turns out, who did nothing but think about the ways in which John Lennon had brought him down. Let him down. Left him down. A very available guy. This person was down. He thought John Lennon had put him there, which, to use this person's own logic, meant that John Lennon was a charlatan, a turncoat, the very opposite of what he appeared to be. More than people knew. And as I said, John Lennon was also very much in the public eye. You could walk up to him, ask for his autograph, shake his hand. His guard was down. On a visit to New York, you were just as likely to see John Lennon walking down 72nd Street as you were to see yellow cabs and rats scurrying in the subway. That old cliché. So evil came to Fear City. And evil found John Lennon living without fear. I used to live near the Dakota building, and had I still been living there in December 1980, I probably would have heard the shots ring out. Though I'm glad I didn't because I don't think the sound would have ever left me. On November 17, 1980, John and Yoko Ono Lennon released Double Fantasy, the first album by either of them in more than five years. It was the longest John had gone between albums since 1963. The 14 songs on the album alternated between John's songs, just like Starting Over, Watching the Wheels, and Woman, to name a few, and Yoko's songs like Kiss 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 and Every Man Has a Woman Who Loves Him. The lead single, Just Like Starting Over, didn't exactly fly into the number one slot upon its release, but it did make it into the top 10 within the first few weeks. 
Some fans who had waited so long and so patiently for new John songs were loath to be subjected to Yoko's songs in between. Some would pick the needle up on their turntable every time a John song ended and move it forward to the next groove in the vinyl where the next John song began. Critics, however, weren't especially kind to Yoko or John. The LA Times said, quote, those expecting the return of the mythical Lennon will be sorely disillusioned, unquote. The Washington Post accused John's songs of, quote, a general lack of substance, lyrical directness, and undistinguished melodies, unquote. The UK press was even nastier. Melody Maker declared the record to be a, quote, god-awful yawn, unquote. In the new Musical Express, Charles Sharamari suggested that, quote, Lennon keep his big happy trap shut until he has something to say, even vaguely relevant, to those of us not married to Yoko Ono, unquote. The critics were wrong, of course, as critics often are. The last album John Lennon released while he was alive did extol the laid-back virtues of house husbandry and family life. It may have even defined the subgenre that would decades later come to be known as dad rock. And the songs, however, are simple and expressive, and the melodies are anything but undistinguished. Yoko's songs offer an experimental counterbalance to John's and strive to keep one of his feet firmly planted in the avant pop scene. A few weeks after Double Fantasy was released, on the afternoon of Friday, December 5th, Mark Snyder pulled his cab over at the intersection of 8th Avenue and 55th Street to pick up a fare. The man who climbed into the back seat was heavyset, bespectacled, and visibly agitated. He carried a heavy duffel bag and had a copy of the latest issue of Playboy magazine rolled up under his arm, the one that featured an extensive interview with John Lennon. The man gave the cabbie three addresses. The first was the Century Apartments on Central Park West. Snyder pulled the cab to the side of the road, and the man told him to wait. A few minutes later, the man was back in the cab and gave Snyder a second address, East 65th and 2nd Avenue. Snyder drove to the location, and once again, the man asked Snyder to wait while he ran inside for a moment. Both times, the man carried the heavy duffel bag with him, and both times, he returned to the cab out of breath. This time, when the man returned, his irritation seemed to have subsided. He was no longer stewing. His eyes had softened. Snyder looked back at the man's pudgy face in the cab's rearview mirror and saw a smile come over him. The man laughed, and then he started talking. I just have to tell you this. It's just too cool. I just dropped off some tapes of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Studio sessions. They just recorded today. Lennon and McCartney. They played for like three hours. I was the engineer. I engineer all of John's stuff. Snyder admitted that he was too cool. Eight million stories in the naked city and this was one of them. Who would have thunk it? John and Paul added again. But what Snyder didn't know was that the man in the back of his cab, the man telling this incredible story, wasn't an audio engineer at all. He'd never laid eyes on John Lennon in his life. Snyder didn't know that the man in the back of his cab had recently stopped having hallucinations for long enough to get himself from Hawaii to New York City, where he booked a $16.50 room at the YMCA and hit the streets of the Big Apple with a copy of The Catcher in the Rye stuffed in the back pocket of his jeans. Suddenly, the man's mood changed again. His smile bent into a grimace. He shook his head a few times in quick succession. The man then gave Snyder one final destination, Bleecker Street and Fifth Avenue. They arrived and the man paid his fare, thanked Snyder and asked him his name. Snyder's answer appeared to give the man some fleeting happiness. Wow, he said, 
Your name is Mark too, huh? What are the chances? And then, Mark David Chapman hoisted up his duffel bag, exited Snyder's cab, and headed out in search of a record store so that he could purchase a brand new copy of Double Fantasy, the latest album from John Lennon and Yoko Ono. He would then bring it over to the Dakota building off Central Park West for the next phase of his plan. A plan that would begin with asking the phony Beatle for an autograph and end with blood on the tracks. All right, everybody, thanks for listening to Blood on the Tracks. If you like what you hear, be sure to find and follow Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this season two of Blood on the Tracks, we'll be releasing 10 episodes on the incredible life of John Lennon, with a new episode every Thursday. You can also binge all 10 episodes of season one on the insane story of the notorious record producer, Phil Spector. Right now, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. This episode was mixed by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This episode featured Chris Anzalone as Dick Cabot. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you want to chat about this show or hear more about the other shows we're making at Double Elvis, tap in on Instagram at Double Elvis, on Twitter at Double Elvis FM, and now on Twitch where we're streaming three days a week at twitch.tv slash Double Elvis Podcasts. And finally, be sure to check out Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland, or if you have an Echo device, just say, Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. Rock along. Oh, dang it.